Hey guys, welcome to the Paddler's Playbook. Welcome ladies and gentlemen of podcast land. Thermal convection, man. These dudes almost killed me. You know, redfish are really dumb. How do you take your marsh dump? This fool used all my toilet paper. Bro, Well now that Drew's done dragging this on. TPP 15. You gonna get a dozen shrimp? Hey, you throwing that cast net again this weekend? Oh good lord. I almost died. I do not want to paddle that far. Once again, he almost died. I'm not waking up at the butt crack of dawn. I'll see you at the launch around noon. I love wake baits. Haven't you ever heard them chatter? Let me double back here first. And now, a word from Saltside Jet. Oh, yeah. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the paddle. Check out our Welcome, ladies and gentlemen of Podcast Land. I'm your host, Drew Turner. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Lewis. What up, dog? What up? And this is another edition of the Paddler's Playbook, coming to you live from the Mariner Sales Studio. I was waiting. I was waiting for you to interrupt me. You didn't interrupt (laughs) me. You always interrupt me. Man, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do better these days. Nah, <laughs> forget that. That'd be dumb. Now, if you guys haven't been listening to the show in the past, I don't know. We've been doing this now for about six months now. If you haven't listened to the show, we've, we've been doing been... this for six months. No, 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 no. We've been doing the intro. So we record the episode and then we do the intro so we can talk a little bit about what we talked about. And at the end of this show, Chris says he needs to go on a little rant. Do you do you want to rant now in the intro? Is that oh, something offline? Okay. It's not really offline? A, it's not really a rant. No, it's not really a rant. Okay, so this is what it's about. So let's get the rant episode, out of the way. Last episode, I was freaking brain dead, bro. Like we had to do it on a day when I I I got up way too early to go fishing and I was fished way too late. I fished all freaking day, but I was having a blast. It was like one of those epic days that I couldn't just, just stop, dude. I mean, I literally, I almost ran out of gas and then spent $80 for 15 gallons so I could go fish some more. That's the kind of day I had. Doesn't come around that often. So I was like dead, dead whenever we were recording that last episode. And I always go back and listen to them afterwards. And I'm like, okay, is there something that, you know, I said that was stupid, you know, I try not to be stupid, but then I'm still stupid. Um, and what it was, was you were like, Chris, but you always talk about chasing down that one redfish that's all by itself. Why are you out there chasing schools? It's not that we were out there chasing schools. It's that we knew schools would be moving through. Okay. Now, in that same area, on our pre-fish day, which was two weeks prior, we found our largest fish, and here it comes, on points. We've already had that discussion, Drew. We've already had that discussion. That has been the trend. Yeah. That's that why I said. That's why I for, said you were overthinking it, man. You and they have been it. by themselves. All the 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 largest fish that we've caught have been by themselves, on points, um, and and it's got you got to have some good 
good moving water, man. It's got you got to have either a good incoming tide or a good outgoing tide, depending on where they are, they are on those points. Um, the incoming tide has been more, uh, what's the word, prevalent lately. Like mm-hmm. when we get up in the morning to go fish, it's it's already the out the outgoing tide has happened. It's happened at night. Um, now, of course, we have the four tide days, but most of the, most of the days right now we've had these incoming tides in the morning. But these fish that we were on, and they're still there. They're still in the same damn place, and they're doing this. They're following the same patterns, man. In the morning, incoming tide, that bait gets there, it gets stuck, it gets trapped. They just push it, um, and it's it, they're schools of fish. So you can still go after those schools and then still try to pick off your onesies and twosies, hoping that you'll get lucky and pick out a big one on one of these schools. Um, hell, I think I had, I had a seven and a quarter pound fish out of one of those schools. That's not a slouch. Mm-mm. You know, that's a decent sized fish. It, you catch two of those and you're prob- possibly in the top three, maybe top five. Um, this year for sure. Yeah. This year for sure. Yeah, man, this has been the year of five pounders. <laughs> you know, everybody it, last year we had a day where a guy caught 21 pounds off of two fish, bro. That's that crazy. was for the rubber lip roundup. And there was, he caught two fish and there were it, he 21 pounds, dude, on two fish. So that's ridiculous. But anyway, that was sort of my, what I was going to rant about. And it wasn't necessarily a rant. It was just, I have been trying to target those onesies and twosies. Um, but first get, Get on that opportunity shot first, you know. Yeah, it's it's hard whenever they're schooling and you see them right in front of you to go. Yeah, when you, eh, when those you... are going to be smaller fish. It's it, you can't do that. Your monkey brain just goes, "There's fish, let's go catch them." Well, look, these were open water schools, man. Yeah, open water schools are a little bit different, and sometimes they can hold some monsters. And, um, and I'm not saying your monkey brain. I'm saying. As fishermen in general, it's fever, bro. <laughs> it's the redfish fever. Our, uh, the part of our monkey brain goes, "Hey, let's let's get over. Let's the get after red those." Redfish fever is why we look at ditches as we're driving, going, "Is that a tail?" Looking Knowing for damn tails. well it's a freaking Degrito's bag. <laughs> so you you were just talking about um, you know a twenty one pound bag. Give me your estimate on what's going to win this next GRS stop. Okay, so I Because we got GRS coming yeah. up July 9th. So I'm finally seeing some pretty good fish that people are catching. But look, dude, here's here's the deal. GRS won, okay? I'm pre-fishing in March, March 26th, in fact, and I'm catching eight and eight and a half pounders. The next weekend... Blank, dude. Or not, no, not blank. We weighed in fish, but they were two six pounders. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next GRS, I'm pre fishing, and I'm telling you every single fish on points, and they were eight, eight and a half pounds. You know, I could have, I could have ran away with this 16 and a half, 17 pound bag if it were on that damn day. But the next weekend, Two six pound fish again, 
Actually, I think I had a four and a half pounder that freaking weekend. But if the people that are on fish this weekend stay on those fish and can still get them to, to bite for the next GRS, um, we might see a 17-pound bag, dude. I think so. I think it. I think 16 pounds is going to win this tournament. We're going to see our first 16 pound on the kayak side. 16 pounds, bro. Should I go fish? Um, um, you know, now. I don't know where you should fish. You should go fish anywhere. I heard some big fish been coming out of now. There's there's been some big fish caught. I can't get my boat back there, though. And guess what? Yeah, I think I just let the cat out of the bag. I can't fish August 6th, so I'm turning in both of my uh, my remaining entry fees to fish one boat division. So the downfall is it costs twice as much to fish the boat division. The upside is I might I have a chance at pulling in a check that you know could potentially pay off all my debt for for GRS this year. <laughs> there you go. Chris, I got something to show you. What are you going to show me, man? I, I know this is horrible for the podcast, but this is 100% because of you. You ready? Please don't take out your balls, man. I, I got my You foamy. got yourself a dude. I got me a foamy from Real Sportswear. I got the foamy. Bro. That is that's gonna be your new fave, man. I, I, I wait I until you're foamy. out there in the heat, and your head is not boiling because it's being kept cool by the foam. You're gonna I, be I'm like, ready. damn, Chris is right. I got the I got the uh, backwater camo, and I got the shirt to match it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be matching while I'm out there fishing. I may not go this weekend. Well, I'll make sure that I don't wear the backwater camo then. Well, we, don't wear, be, we don't need to be matchy-matchy at the... I'll at wear the, my jersey, quote-unquote, jersey to the weigh-ins, but I'm, I'm definitely going to wear this out on the water. Speaking of jerseys, hey, Danny, we need some new uh, pure fishing jerseys, man. It's been four years since we've had a an upgrade. Hook it up, brother. <laughs> Get those Xenons out there. I, I need a Xenon baitcaster. I'm, I'm ready for those. I need to go buy... I need to buy me one. Are they available? Have you looked? They are not available online, but uh, they are in stores. So, uh, but it's very select few stores, from what I understand. That have um, actual bait casters. Even our store down here that uh, has someone order has not received their order yet. Um, just challenges, man. Still, there there are still challenges in the uh, you know manufacturing world um, that people have not overcome, man. And even a great a company as Abu Garcia is still dealing with them. So, you know who does not have a challenge right now? Turner Rodco. No, Turner Rodco has, has a cha- challenge. Has a challenge of being tired after regular work. Um, but Mariner Sales. Mariner Sales, bro. They, they don't have a challenge at all. No, they got it going on. And in fact, man, um, I hear they've got some brand new. FPV power batteries yep that are coming in that have started arriving right now so those of you guys that are using um, some old school lithium ion technology give them a call there's some new um, life 
PO4 batteries that are available. Dude, they've got up to 110 amp hour, 24 volt. That's batteries. crazy. And they've got some new 36 volt batteries available too. That's nuts, man. That is nuts, bro. I mean, can you imagine putting a like a 110 36 volt motor on the back of your yak? It would that's a lot of torque. It's going to fly. It's going to go. But they also have in stock the Burley Pro Orb lights that we're going to be giving away and the FPV Power Hub. If you guys did not get in on the Facebook giveaway for that at the Playbooks too Facebook late group. It's, by the time this airs, it's going to be too late. So me and Chris... Get between, in on the next one. Between now and the first, we're going to go in and tally everything up. And, and it was easy for this one. We made it easy. We just told people they had to make a post. Yeah, the next one, do. we're going to have to do a membership drive. It, it's going to have to be a little bit more difficult. They're, we're we're going to have to make them do a little bit more. Um, but we're going to talk to Duke and, and them up at Mariner Sales and, and get some new stuff to give away. But the Burley Pro... Orb light is going to be gone, and the FPV power hub will be gone. But make sure for all of the latest giveaways, make sure you stay tuned to the Playbook Facebook group. Just search Playbook, and you'll see home of the bro staff up there on the cover page. Chris, I'm I'm. This was one of my. I enjoyed this episode more than I think. Maybe any other episode. Like I, I really enjoyed geeking out, listening to Shane talk about CCA, and really whenever he was talking about the hatcheries and getting scientific and talking about mitochondriaplificus and prophylactics. Like it, it was, it was fun. You know what's funny, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? He wasn't kidding about the prophylactic. Yeah, just wait till that gym pops up. We're talking about hatcheries and prophylactics. What what he brings to this show is that that aspect that we don't necessarily dive into very often, and that's the outliers of fishing, the things that affect fishing that we don't think of every single day, um, and how breeding fish affects our fishery. Um, I think if people wrap their brains around what's being said in this episode, it's going to go a long way. We also talk about where they release star tournament fish. But don't tell any, don't tell anybody actually share, share the hell out of this with all your friends, but know that there's, there's a lot of good info. There's a lot of good questions um, that we got from the playbook facebook page and in the group there and i forgot to tell him but i wanted to tell him too coming up the first weekend in october i think it would be great to have shane out there at the bro staff meetup there at matagorda because oh, sure, we're doing matagorda again if you guys have not heard bro staff meetup october 1st that's people the- are stoked about it bro yeah everybody's already asking uh what do i need to bring how do i get back there you know, X, Y, Z, this, this, this. Bring wood. It's, it's going to be fun. Do not bring Elm. Please do not try to kill me again. I don't want to end up at Matagorda uh, Regional. Do not want to bill for that. But Chris, you ready to get into this? Let's do it. All right. Jess is back. She was on strike there for a while. 
but I know a few people have messaged me and said, where are my commercials from Saltside Jess? I haven't heard from her in like three episodes. So she's back. Hey, bro staff. Are you excited? Because I'm excited to announce this month's bro staff giveaway sponsored by Mariner Sales. Before I tell you the who, how about I tell you the what just to keep it interesting. This month's winner is taking home the Burley Pro Orb, a 12-volt, three-piece collapsible light perfect for boats or kayaks. With IP68 LEDs oriented at 360 degrees and angled overhead, it can be used for either an anchor light or a permanent running light. Never one to give you a toy with no place to plug it, Mariner Sales is also giving the winner an FPV Power Hub. The FPV Power Hub Distribution Hub is a plug-and-play solution for those wanting to power multiple items on their kayak. The hub is neat and a compact solution for the orb and all your other fishing gadgets. So now, without further ado, a big bro staff golf clap to James Shettle. The boys will be packaging up that item and sending the goodies your way so you can be on the lookout for the Mariner Sales logo on the box. We hope to see you on the water enjoying all your new stuff. New stuff is always awesome. It's even better when it's a gift. And recently, Drew brought home a sweet new shirt from Real Sportswear. Just for me. It's the new Sunday's top from Real Sportswear. This is the first time I've had the opportunity to wear their t-shirts, and I was not disappointed. The material was soft, breathable, lightweight, and quality made. I can't wait to get on realsportswear.com and add more to my off-the-water wardrobe. Log on and get yours today. Well, bro staff, my strike is over, and my contract has been renegotiated. So I'm Saltside Jess, and I'll see you on the salt side well guys you heard it from salt side jess hey and we are glad to have you back lady it's been a while since we've had your voice giving us those sweet commercials letting all the people know about what's going on with our partners but hey we're not just here to talk about our partners today you know we're here to talk about our actually our biggest our largest partner in the fishing industry drew what's up what's going on man who we got today what See, I wasn't on for the beginning when you were talking to Shane, so I don't know how to pronounce his last name. So you're just going to throw me under the bus I like am, that. I am. Yeah, well, okay, here we go. I'm you're sure gonna, you asked gonna him how three, to... You're going to get three chances on how to say it properly. Okay, here's chance number one. Bonet. There ain't no E-T in there. Okay. Bonat. No chance number two. It's not Bonat. Okay, here's strike three right here coming up. Oh, Bo note. <laughs> Bo note, huh? All right. So Shane Bono. Shane see. Bono. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not Banat. It's not Banet. It's not what what you say what was the other one? B- Banier? It's Shane. It's Shane. <laughs> That's Shane. his name. Sh- Shane. Shane. <laughs> All right, so we've got Shane, and Shane is uh, widely known for his hand in, well, what Drew believes is is the only thing he ever does and he's ever done in his life is is working hatcheries. But uh, that's not the truth. The that man's worked in uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife. He's worked, what he was telling me earlier was uh, Virginia also um, on some hatchery programs in Virginia. And now 
the uh, CCA. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Shane Bono. Chris, Drew, where all, thanks for this, having me. Yeah. This is where the crowd goes wild. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, 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 doubtful, doubtful. But th thanks, guys. I appreciate being on here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so you're involved and in you've you've had your hands in in a lot of different things. Wait, wait, I, wait. You're going to go straight into business here? No, straight no, I'm not. Straight into business? Okay. No, you All gotta right. let me finish. I, yeah, I need to I need to hear those those uh those sacred words from Drew. Okay, can I go? Yeah. <laughs> okay, no interruption this Hit time, it. you promise? Okay. Shit, no, I don't promise. <laughs> so, you know, you got your hands in a lot of different things, but I'm sure this all stems from a lifetime love of fishing and the outdoors and things like that. So mm -hmm. I I got to know what is your or one of your most memorable fishing memories like this is where we get intimate shane yeah what what sticks out to you the most it could be from your childhood it could be a memorable catch like what what fishing memory comes to mind first whenever i ask that question no that's a layup man that's no problem at all with that one and and some people may have heard this before because i've shared it on other other platforms you know i grew up um we didn't have a boat when I was a kid, so it was all shoreline access, um, getting property owner permission to drive up and, and park and walk out and wait with my dad. And he took us every chance he could get. And I vividly remember being on Karankawa Bay and uh, on an oyster reef casting out. And we would catch our bait and use live bait and casting my mullet out and sitting there and... Um, I'm not sure what was on the end of my line, most likely a huge gaff top, but my knees were locked. My feet were planted in the mud or, or coming off of the reef. My rod was bowed over and this fish and I was skiing on top of the mud and the shell drifting <laughs> out into deep water. And how old were you? And I was probably 10, 11. Because when um, I look at your, your Facebook picture, like you look like a fairly large dude. You know, you don't look like this like five foot four mini guy. Um, no, but as a kid, I was I was super a, super tiny as ten years old. Yeah, super tiny, skinny, no muscle. See, I weighed um, as much as Drew whenever I was ten. <laughs> you were a big boy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I broke a hundred pounds until my sophomore year, so that should give you some gauge of how small I was growing up. So um, this fish is just dragging. It's your dragging me out, and then eventually the line broke, uh, and so I never got to see what it was. It was either a huge gaff top or maybe a ray, but you know, I can remember that trip, and I'll never forget that trip. And that kind of cemented in me my love for the coast, my love for the bay, and my love for fishing. You've got to change that story up, man. You yeah, can't, top, you can't say it was a gaff top. You got to be like, <laughs> it was a huge jack. It was a huge no. ray. It was something yeah. like that. You can't say gaff top. I got a lot of love for gaff top. My first email was gaff top at hotmail.com because of that. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it could have, it could have at least, it could have been booger fish or something like that. Oh, you I know, tried trout, grimy. I tried redfish. They were all taken, but gaff top was still there. My, mine actually was Texas Topwaters. That was one. that was available. Texas Topwaters at AOL. Chris, do you remember back when the internet came out when you were like forty? Oh God, come on! Oh shit, a wasp! <laughs> <laughs> Hold up, I gotta kill that motherfucker! <laughs> oh, 
Jesus Christ. Let's let's mute Chris. Chris is Chris is fighting wasp. Well, so Chris's phobia now. <laughs> yeah, look, I I can't do wasp either. I got to kill wasp. So I, I said that you had your hand in a lot of things over the years. Give us, you know, as brief as you want it to be. You know, we want to get to know you a little bit. A rundown of of all the things that you've done as far as Texas Parks and Wildlife, CCA, hatchery. You know, everything that you've been involved in. Sure, sure. I. I I was in, I got in marine science and mariculture, which is aquaculture and marine science blended together and in graduate school in AM Corpus Christi. And so from then on, I've been involved in something on the coast, whether that was in Virginia, managing an oyster hatchery, and then moving back to Texas and work, working 10 years for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Shout out program. to the, shout out to the Islanders. I'm a former Islander as well. Shout hey, out hey. to the Islanders. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, me and my wife both graduated there. You didn't do and, any fishing in Oso Bay, did you? Oh, I absolutely a did. A lot of fishing. About Oso Bay. Yeah, yeah buddy. Yeah, yep. Did you see that pterodactyl try to kill me? Uh, we heard it. We heard you <laughs> scream. Oh, man. <laughs> but, okay, sorry, you're interrupting Shane. Go ahead. Yeah, it Yeah, and, and uh, 10 years with Parks and Wildlife in their, in their stock enhancement program or, or hatchery program for the coast, and then uh, six years now, almost seven, I guess, coming up on seven with uh, Coastal Conservation Association. So let let's start with CCA. Um, what what does an advocacy director do? Like, what do you what do you? How does that how does that work? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at a lot of other NGOs, non governmental organizations or nonprofits, they have sometimes they have somebody with this title, or it'll be policy director or conservation director or something like that. But you know, for me, they they created this position. And, and and offered it to me and and i've had to kind of make it make it my own but typically someone in this role um is is the go-between between the organization and and policy for the organization so i advocate for healthy fisheries and and i advocate for conservation measures and i advocate for habitat work that we do up up and along the coast and and you know that advocacy can happen in austin with parks and wildlife it could happen at the texas capitol with the legislature and it can happen in dc with the federal government most of my work is here in texas but it does some of it it does blend over in some federal fisheries as well so, so what type of programs um currently because we all know how healthy and we're going to get to the hatchery stuff because that's really a lot of what I want to talk about. But I, what kind of programs are we currently trying to advocate? What are we trying to do here in Texas? What, are, what is the big thing that we're trying to change and get towards right now? Like, what's the hot button issue? Um, I mean, there's a couple. I mean, one of the mo most pressing issues for us as an organization and, and other organizations as well is ensuring that we have a healthy public oyster fishery and so that's been a, that's been something of concern you know you know for the past 15 years but it's become more pressing um here in the last seven years and so um we just want to make sure that we have healthy public oyster reefs not only for the fishermen but also for all the ecosystem services that those reefs do in the bays filtering water stabilizing shoreline reducing erosion uh, creating habitat that we can fish on. Um, so, 
you know, we're, we're seeing a decline in, in our reefs and all along the Texas coast. And we want to try to reverse that trend. Now, is that, is that decline? Are you guys finding, is that due to, um, more because I, I think more and more people are coming into Texas to I don't know it's I don't harvest oysters is that the right word I know it's not fishing for oysters but to harvest oysters is it more of hey we need to crack down to make sure they're not taking too small of oysters like what what's going on with the actual oysters yeah and, and it's not just the the harvest mm-hmm. uh, although that's a that's a large piece but it's it's also, you know, facing some environmental challenges. Um, and this all started in 2008 with Hurricane Ike and silting over 80 something percent of the reefs in Galveston Bay, which used to ah. support, they used to support all of our, most of our oyster fishery for the state. So since 08, since that happened, the, the pressures shifted south, shallower bays, further south you go. So the oyster fishery has transitioned to those shallower bays using shallower drafting boats and they're accessing reefs that historically weren't harvested reefs that you and i would be wading mm-hmm. and reefs that we used to wade would be knee deep but now they're waist deep or chest deep because those reef systems have been dredged down lower and lower each year and so harvest is a piece of it but also environmental challenges whether that be going back to hurricane ike or you know drought floods you name it um there's a lot of things that can kill an oyster besides the harvest is there oh go ahead chris i don't know if you saw um a while back drew but shane post posted on facebook um it was a pretty detailed and in-depth uh analysis of uh oyster reefs and with photographs on how they've changed since I don't know man first took photographs of oyster reefs and uh, I don't know when the, what the earliest photograph you had but it was of this freaking monstrous reef that was out there and now it's like teeny teeny tiny man I'll give y'all an example if you want a, a detailed example oh, yeah I want to get as detailed as possible I'm I love this kind sure. of stuff our yeah. listeners are going to nerd out to, to this kind of talk so Half Moon Reef in, in Matagorda Bay uh, used to be about three and a half miles long and um, 500 yards wide. And it encompassed an area of about 508 acres. And we rerouted the river to um, diverted it out of Matagorda Bay and, and straight into the Gulf. And so we lost that freshwater in, input into the base system which led to the demise the beginning of the demise of that reef and back in the 50s you could dredge dead shell you could mine dead shell for road base construction what have you and so a lot of that reef was mined and it was it was lowered in 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 the water column and the remaining living components of the reef were harvested and the reef got degraded to a point to where it went from four to six foot deep. And I'm not, when I say deep, I mean, there was, there was, if you stuck a stick down in the reef, four to six feet, you would be hitting shell. So that's, there was a very, very old reef. And so by the late 1990s, it was reduced to nothing but shell hash, which is just like what you see washed up on, on the beach. 
And so it's com completely degraded, completely lost from a multitude of reasons. And mo most recently in 2014, the Nature Conservancy completed a pretty bold restoration project to the tune of $5 million to restore uh, 50 acres of that original 500 acre acre reef. So, you know, that was probably one of the images that Chris was referring to. And yeah, that reef used to, there used to be parts of that reef in the early 1900s that at low tide were intertidal, they would be exposed. And anybody that fishes the restored parts of Half Moon Reef now, you you know, those, the that restoration, you, you could drift over most of it. I've heard a few props have been lost because it's been so successful. <laughs> The oysters have grown up a lot higher than what they're anticipating. So you do have to be careful out there. But um, it just shows you that it's it, it, the point I, I guess I'm trying to make. And not only, you know, we've seen these reefs lost, but we can spend millions and millions of dollars trying to restore them. And it's a lot more cost effective to conserve them and not let them get to that point like we let Half Moon Reef get to. What's what's involved with restoration of a of a reef? It can look like uh, you know different things, but it's basically taking uh, material. It could be oyster shell, could be river rock, could be granite. Hell, it could be crushed up toilets. Could be porcelain, uh, and, and putting that in, in a location most of the time where a reef used to exist and was lost lost because of over harvest or lost because of environmental reasons and so you're basically putting material into the water that will recruit oyster larvae naturally recruit oyster larvae from the wild uh spawns from our public reefs and i'm, I'm not gonna act like i i knew this fact because i just googled it but it says that oh we heard you <laughs> yeah but it says that it takes up to 15 months just for an oyster reef to grow three inches. So over a year just to get three inches of growth. And you're saying that there was a four to six foot tall oyster reef. That's a lot of months. Like, I don't math right now because my brain is fried. <laughs> but that's a lot of months. That's a no, lot of years yeah. to get that, that kind of was, growth. was hundreds and hundreds of years old. And what happens is, you know, you're referring to the growth of an individual oyster taking 15 months to get to three inches. Okay. A, 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 what happens is that that oyster will colonize the top of the reefs and it colonizes on top of an existing oyster. Well, that happens over consecutive generations. So the reef builds up and as it's building up, it's also sinking. The weight is sinking down into ah. the sediment. It's subsiding at the same time. And so, um, you know, that, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point to bring up when you want to talk about carbon sequestration and capturing carbon from the environment and sinking it back into the sediment. Oyster reefs are a great avenue for that. So besides all the other stuff that oysters are great for, it's a good carbon sink to, to uh, get carbon out of the environment. And so, um, yeah, an individual oyster takes about a year and a half for that oyster to get to to harvest size which is three inches but when they're making a reef true it's not a one-to-one -one ratio here pal yeah 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 i know 
He's like, damn, that, that reef growed it in about 20 years. It's a 20-year yeah, no, reef there. It was hundreds <laughs> and hundreds, if not centuries, um, old. And, and you can look back. I mean, there's some data from other states as well um, and, and historical images of what the reefs looked like when we did first start taking pictures of reefs and doing some of those surveys. And it is astonishing how far we've come from even then in the early 1900s. So um, there's a good book out there called The Big Oyster, which kind of uh, summarizes the demise of the oysters in New York Harbor. And it talks about how oysters played a huge role in the development and the history of the New Yorkers. And, you know, that, that harbor, um, the James River, the Chesapeake Bay, oyster reefs were so vast and so expansive. They were significant navigation hazards. And so that's, you know, now we don't, for the most part, we don't even, we don't even consider or worry about running over oyster reefs. I mean, obviously in some shallow water, there's some spots, but I'm talking about worrying about oyster reefs in six foot depth of water, eight foot depth of water. Back, back in the 1800s and 1900s, even navigating those depths of waters were a concern for oyster reefs. Can you imagine just pulling up and scraping your kayak in six foot of water on an oyster reef, Chris? Well, you know what? Um, some of those oyster bars are like that in Florida, but you know that's different. Uh, like he was saying, that's more like the the oyster. What'd you call it? Oyster hash? Shell hash? Yeah. Shell hash. Yeah. So you're talking about what gets washed up and accumulates yeah. mm-hmm. the broken pieces of all the oysters. Well, yeah. You'll be in six foot of water, and then all of a sudden, hey, what's? That? <laughs> yeah, you'll run onto some. But that's of course because of their tides. That's not because of. Yeah. The growth of oysters. Uh, but those are important too because they they help break up the waves and attenuate the waves, and then allows more sunlight to reach the seagrass and helps the seagrass grow. So, um, just because there may not be living oysters on those on that vertical relief, it's it's helpful to the fisheries. It's still habitat. It's still structure. It still does all the things that oysters do, except filter the water. Well, don't tell all these people that because those are usually where I'm hanging out to fish. Man. That's that's the good spot. There's there's usually some some really good grass somewhere around those big oyster bars for yeah. sure. Now you mentioned the oysters. Is there any other hot button issues going on right now? You said there there was a couple. Well, I, you know, the oyster piece is is hot button and controversial. I mean, there's certainly some other important things that are maybe not as controversial to the everyday recreational angler. I mean, freshwater inflows is is extremely important and it's a constant battle at the Texas legislature to ensure that the TCEQ and other agencies involved are allowing enough water to get down our rivers and in and into the bays. And that's, that's uh, um, that Texas is growing um, rapidly, too rapidly, in my opinion. Um, I think there's only a three percent margin error for our, our grid, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's as, as everyone remembers during Snowmageddon a year and a half ago, w- what happened that that should be a wake up call to everybody that we've got some serious problems in our, in our state, but. 
um, ensuring we have enough freshwater inflows is, is a big thing. And it's something that, um, like I said, it doesn't get a lot of anglers fired up, but we need to start thinking about that. Now, is the is the inflow being cut down because we need more drinking water and things yeah, like damn that? More water upstream. But I, I would think too that the more concrete that we have, that you're going to get more flow into the bayous and everywhere else too. Though is that is that thinking incorrect? Well, you're and 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 you're the the amount of time it takes rainwater or surface water to to get to the bayous um, is, is shortened because of that channelization, whether it be concrete or just a straight ditch, earthen mm-hmm. ditch. Um, and those aren't always good things. You know, typically you want a riparian zone along that path that the water takes to reach to the bay because all of that vegetation will I help. Gotcha clean up the water in the process but that all that doesn't help with i mean that's that hurts with flooding Mm -hmm. and so we've developed our coast so much that we try to get the water off the plain as quickly as as possible so we don't flood we don't flood neighborhoods but really it's it it is public consumption it's it's large metropolitan cities uh taking a lot of water and industry uh uh takes just an ungodly amount amount of water this this has nothing to do with this but this is for our listeners that live like in the katy area or around 99 and you guys are complaining about all this flooding you guys bought a house in a neighborhood (laughs) that was a rice field it was a rice (laughs) field for the past 200 years and now they're building homes and communities on those rice fields and now you're having flooding and you wonder why is it flooding why is uh, we could there? use some flooding right about now. That's why these damn wasps are attacking me. <laughs> and before it was a rice field, it was it was a coastal plain, a coastal wetland. Exactly. And now I'm in Lake Jackson. This used to be a swamp, a uh, bottomland swamp. And um, yeah, we've we've changed the landscape pretty dramatically. So you were talking about you know freshwater influx. What about the allowing the water to um, move in and out of the base system into the Gulf. Um, and I really want to speak to one particular case. Roll over pass. Yeah. Let's, I want to, I want to, let's squash that man. Like there's so many people that have all these um, theories and beliefs as to what closing rollover pass will do, has done, and of course, you know, if you watch shows like Yellowstone or, you know, anything like that, you'll know that acquiring property is power. So somebody acquired that property in order to make money because that's powerful. Um, and they closed down, you know, the past. Um, of course, we've already seen nature try to reclaim it once. And uh, they've had to go back in there and, and redo a lot of the work that they had already done. So. Shane, what do you know about closing the pass and what it's actually going to do? Well, I know a lot of people blame CCA for that. And we had, we, you know, we, and we, we weren't, that wasn't us. Um, that, was the, that was the general land office. And I'll speak to it from a biological standpoint, because honestly, I don't know the politics of the decision to close that was long before I started with, with CCA. And I don't know the reasons why, but, 
you know, Chris, you're probably not wrong. I mean, it's, 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 it's money most likely. Uh, and whether that be, um, uh, maintenance fees for, um, battling erosion, that was, that was the result of that pass being opened, but we, I'm just speculating. So I'd rather speak to the biological part. And, I, that, and that's really what I'd like to get to is the biological part. Yeah. What's it going to do to, you know, uh, East Bay, um, you know, Trinity, things like that. I mean, obviously having it open was, it, it was, it was a good avenue for migration. So it, having it open certainly would help, uh, recruitment of offshore spawning fish, flounder and, and red drum. Um, however, you have, you know, the Galveston, Bolivar Channel, Bolivar Roads, you know, it's, it's just an extremely expansive pass. And the amount of recruitment that came through that compared to rollover is just night, night and day. I mean, rollover is just a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what's exactly. coming in, what's coming in through Galveston. But, you know, it certainly didn't hurt from a larva recruitment standpoint. I think, I think that. You know, I heard it would it would help the oyster reefs in East Bay. Whether or not that's happened, I don't I don't know. I also heard, and I don't fish that area, so I'm not a, I'm not an expert on it. But I also had heard that, you know, there used to be lots and lots of healthy seagrass beds, and the the hope was that some of that would start coming back. I would imagine whether it's oysters or seagrass, that there's a lot more at play in the changing of those landscapes other than rollover pass being open or closed. Well, there's a lot of uh, seagrass that's, that's changed, um, especially because of the, like you had put earlier, the snowmageddon or whatever they call it, the icepocalypse um, that we had a year and a half ago. We lost a ton of seagrass, and then there's seagrass popping up in areas I had never seen seagrass before. So, uh, I think it's that, that sort of thing is just ever evolving and changing. It, it does. Um, you're right. You're absolutely right. Just because a bed's there one year doesn't mean you're going to see it the next. Um, as long as the rhizomes, the stuff under the sand, under the sediment, is still there, that 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 bed will come back eventually. The rhizomes is that that stuff that smells like cow shit? <laughs> no, just think of it like the roots of the. Of the I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just messing with you, man. You ever been in a marsh and you're like, "Holy sh God!" Uh, oh yeah, what oh, God yeah. back here? Yeah, Chris, you you know what marsh I've been fishing lately? It smells like dog food. Like I, it's the weirdest smell. I've never smelled a smell like that before, and it smells like dog food. It's it's so it doesn't smell like you know sulfur or anything when you really get to churning up mud and sediment and everything it smells like well, dog food it's, it's really weird some very fresh yeah it's odd areas so it's odd it's yeah it's weird weird stuff so i want to talk I'm a trying not bit. to give away where you've been fishing. yeah i know so let's let's not talk too too much about that now our other spots hitting right now too i'll just say that um I think my brother's playing mind games with with some tournament folks because he's been posting videos of him with donkeys and everything. Well, bro, you told me that he he came home with seventeen pounds the other day. I'm like seventeen pounds with three fish because if he caught seventeen pounds on two fish and brought them home, you need to kick him in the nuts. Well, 
look, I'll I'll let I'll let the cat out of the bag. You know he's not always prepared at all for anything. So so he kept him on the stringer long enough to get to the truck because the scale was in the truck so he could weigh him and then let him back let him go after he got to the truck. So there's there's that. I wouldn't so, have even done that. He he's not keeping anymore. That's bad juju. I, I that is why the last he's tournament not, not, we had that issue James, with the live well. His his brother's not the smartest cookie. <laughs> he's gonna be mad at you whenever he listens to this episode. <laughs> you're gonna have to hear it. You better hope. Well, you're not fishing in the the kayak side for GRS coming up. So <laughs> I know you, Drew. You had somewhere that you wanted to go with this conversation, but I wanted to go back on something that he was touching on earlier. Um, if, if I can, you're going to keep that question in your, in your mind or you got somewhere you need to go with this? No, I just want to move on to the hatchery. So go ahead. Cause okay. I, I don't know Jack well, about the hatchery and I want to know more. Here's, here's what's cool about the, you know, the conversation that's going to take place when, with regards to the hatchery. Um, Shane, you said that you, you like to advocate, um, not just here in Texas, you know, and you're saying that your advocacy doesn't only take you to, you know, the coastal board meetings, but also maybe to some, you know, federal legislator, what, legislature, whatever, you know, what about, have you had any, put any thought into other states that could use your help, other states that, that need someone like you? Because I tell you what, Texas is doing pretty damn good. In fact, most of the coastal states, Gulf coastal states are jealous, are jealous because of, of how we've turned things around. You know, we used to have a real uh, we used to battle red tide just as badly as Florida and Florida just can't seem to they just can't uh, grasp what it is that they need to do in order to turn this thing around um, yeah go ahead well there's so for for CCA, um, Florida is the only other state that has a that has somebody in a role like me. In fact, they they've had somebody longer than CCA Texas has. Uh, but their their issues um, really, I mean, they have a lot of challenges. They have too many people. Uh, you know, just general population. Just general population, um, and they have a lot of they have a lot of fishing pressure. Not not only residents, but a lot, you know, um, vacationers, non-residents that come in. I'm one of those Florida guys. Fish. I love the vacation. <laughs> if you keep Florida fishing, you keep America fishing. Um, I mean, it's that important to not only Florida's economy, but but the United States economy and, and recreational angling as a whole. So they have a lot of challenges, and then of course environmental and and industry challenges that they're that they're facing. So, and they have you they have two coasts that they have to deal with. I mean, and really the keys, you could consider the keys its own little its own. system. Absolutely. So, I mean, they really could use, if they could afford it, they could use two or three people just doing what what I'm doing and what the guy over there, Trip is his name, Trip Aukman, what, he, what he's doing. So, yeah, we've got it good. We're lucky here in, in, in Texas. And a lot of that stems from the recreational angler support for uh, parks and wildlife and for organizations like CCA uh, because it, it puts us in the room to have the conversations to ensure that everything's going along as it as it should. 
Now, did you hear him, uh, Drew, talk about probably the largest pole in that tent, in my mind's eyes, is population. That's something you can't do anything about. You really can't turn people away and say, no, you can't live here because we're free to go wherever we like and live in whatever state that we want to. But how do you deal with that? You can't, like I said, you can't tell people, no, you can't live here. Um, you know, you really got to start thinking outside the box on how to handle that pressure. Yeah, well, from, from a recreational angling perspective, you know, eventually you have to address it through regulation. And that's not what we want. I mean, we don't want more government. We don't want more regulation. But that's that's a tool that's there. That's 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 the tool that's used. What I've what CCA and, and others have been trying to preach uh, here most recently is let's take it upon ourselves to practice conservation while we're out on the water and do the thing that allows us to fish next year, allows us our kids to fish in 10 years, our grandkids to fish in 60 years. Let's go ahead and practice those conservation methods and forget about the meat halls and you know all the, 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 the glory dock shots. You know, let's get past that and keep what we need to eat and let the rest go. And, and that way we can keep attracting people to the fishery and keep and have new entrants come into recreational angling without having to change our bag limits or our size limits and all that stuff. And speaking of bag limits and size limits and things like that, an, another thing I wanted you to hit on is since you've been a part of Texas Parks and Wildlife and you've been a part of CCA, you know, kind of talk about what CCA is involved in, what CCA isn't involved in, what is more Texan, Texas Parks and Wildlife. Because like you said, people thought that CCA is who shut down Rollover Pass, and that was completely false. And I think there's just some misinformation out there of what CCA actually does and how they work with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit. Uh, we started in 1977 with just a group of 13 anglers that were worried about the demise of redfish and spotted sea trout in Texas Bay. So they worked with the Texas legislature to um, ban gill nets and, and make redfish and trout game fish in the state of Texas. And, and from that, we've grown and, and have now 60 chapters across the state. And we do all chapters do fundraising banquets. A lot of chapters do a lot of grassroots effort on the local level, beach cleanups, kid fishing events. Um, they also get involved in local uh, policy issues that, you know, with, with the county or with the city that they're in. But th th those fundraising banquets drive revenue to the organization, and then we then turn around and use that for habitat work. Up all across the state. We use it to support the hatcheries, um, the fish hatcheries in Corpus Christi, one in Palacios, one in Lake Jackson. We'll use that to support law enforcement, uh, the game wardens, and buy them gear that they can't afford, you know, in their normal uh, operating budget. And we'll, we'll work with, um, some of it will go to federal fisheries management. So 
the banquets feed into fundraising, fundraising feeds into habitat and advocacy, and all that creates a, a, a system that attracts people to the fishery and hopefully more and more, more and more CCA members. And, you know, the big driver and, and a lot of that is for membership is our star tournament. That was going to be so, my next question. How, what yeah. percentage of that fundraising coming in comes from the star tournament? Well, or, the, or a the, guesstimate. No, the star tournament is a is a doesn't make money. Well, it's structured not to make money. Mm-hmm. Some years it'll lose money. Some years it might make a little bit, but it's supposed to break. Supposed to break even. Mm-hmm. They have, and so it it pays for staff, and they have a small staff that run that tournament. But beyond that, it, you know, it pays out the prizes, and it um, it it helps drive up our, our it helps create new members into cca okay we don't get texas doesn't get the funds from the membership that goes to the national organization so all the grass works root grass roots work <laughs> here in texas is is from fundraising banquets all across all across the state not not the star tournament Oh, did you hear that, Chris? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent payout for the star tournament is what he's saying. All the money you put in is coming is coming back out. That's that's well, crazy and, to and me. It, well, it's it's not, and it's not just the membership fees or the star tournament fees. I mean, a lot of that stuff is underwritten by mm-hmm. by our our sponsors. So you can go on the star website, you know, and see all the list of sponsors that they have. And they're incredible, and in, and in how they support the scholarship programs and, and prizes. So the the question everybody wants to know, since you were involved in the hatchery program and everything too, were you involved in tagging any of the redfish? That's yeah, not the question yeah, they I, asked. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm the getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So <laughs> you were involved in like tagging other redfish and things like that. Yes, and I, I, I last couple of years I've released some of the tagged redfish. That, my next question, how many people actually know where these fish are released? I mean, oh, is it like super top secret where... It's pretty, it's pretty tight. I, I don't know the number. You know, maybe maybe 10, maybe 12 people. 10 or, probably the people that are actually doing the releases are the only ones that know where they're going to be. Right. Well, we don't know where they're going to be. We know where we put them. What well, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. Where 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 you guys release them? And is yeah. there any kind of like formula into where you guys decide to release them? Is it this is a pretty popular spot? Let's let's put some here. This is a not so popular. No, you don't spot. put. A, you don't They're going to get the less popular spots. Are you kidding me? Well, you want well, people to we, catch them though. You yeah, want no, people want, to catch the fish. The, we want them to be caught. We want all the prizes to be given away. You know, that's that's the goal is to give those scholarships out to the kids and get those trucks and boats out. We don't, we don't, we, we want the prizes um, out there. So no, it's both. I mean, some of them are boat releases in some far removed, you know, backwaters. And some of, some are extremely popular shore bank access spots to where the guy without a boat can have a chance, equal chance. And, I swear there's always one caught like uh, Seabrook right there, like by the spillway. 
He's not going to say anything. He's not going to say anything about where they're released. So don't even try. I'm not. No, I'm he, not. He's I'm not, not going to say anything. I'm not trying to get any. I'm just saying there is it, all, every year, every year there is always a fish, a tagged redfish caught. And he's, he's talking about the guy on the bank, you know, mm-hmm. there. And I, I think that's what it's usually somebody fishing off of the bank that catches a tagged redfish right there by the spillway somewhere in Seabrook. So, yeah, it's. Other everybody yeah. else, I don't know I where the hell they're at. I, I, <laughs> did, y'all, did y'all see the the video from a couple of years ago? One of the guys they had live news feed at the release in Sabine, and they were on I in pleasure on, in Pleasure Island at the marina. And the reporter asked them to pull one of the redfish out of the live well to show the you know the camera what the fish looked like, and he pulled the fish out and. It, he fumbled it, and it was like slow motion watching the fish just on live <laughs> camera go right there into the into the marina there at Pleasure Island. And for the next two weeks, it was probably shoulder to shoulder with people fishing trying to. And, and eventually, it did get caught. So. Oh wow! Yeah. I think it's it's very interesting that you said that there's actually boat releases where you guys go out in the boats and, and drop them in those far reaches. Yeah, where I, where I, of fish, I figure places. I'll never catch one. And that's why no, I mentioned that because I'm sure there's a lot of people that are like, man, I'm in my kayak. I'm way back in the marsh. There's never a fish that's going to get way back here. And they're not, they're not bringing it out here to let it go. But you're saying they're taking them out in boats. So there is a chance that the, the fish can oh, get back there in the marshes. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're released, you know, near the Gulf. And they're released um, as you know, as, as far as water quality inland will allow them to. You know, we want to make sure that we're not putting them in completely fresh water, so we need mm-hmm. at least brackish water to put them into. Uh, but yeah, they're they're pretty far inland as, as and well. And I'm sure you guys track like, okay, this one was dropped off, you know, at at school and, and made its way all the way to the mall. We yeah, I mean, we we kind of have an idea if one was caught in an area which release it it probably came from and oh we know without a doubt what release it came from because it's like it the fish didn't move at all it just stayed right there that's another question that somebody wanted to know like do you guys have an average distance of how far these fish are moving because it's it's me and chris seem to think that redfish really stay if they have a good habitat if they have good food if they have you know good shell or or good grass like they may never leave that area until they go offshore to spawn the 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 star tournament staff have that number i've heard it i don't want to get it wrong it's not (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't remember. I mean, it's not like three miles. It's like a mile or less. It's, it's, it's maybe a quarter mile, but I'm, I'm guessing now. So I, I hate to even do that, but um, it's, you're, you're right. If, if they find a place to where they can feed and they feel safe, they're, they're, they're going to hang out there. They're not going to go yeah. hardly anywhere at all. They're simple creatures, man. Food and sex. Yep. That's, that's it. two things on their mind. <laughs> One of them's all year, and one of them's for a few months. Yeah, yeah, a few months. So let's let's get into the the hatchery because I am pretty ignorant. I know we have hatcheries. I know we release thousands of redfish, um, trout, and we're are we doing flounder as well? Oh yeah, that's yes. what's helped yeah. big time. Yeah, and and we're doing 
all these three things. There's one in Lake Jackson, Palacios, and Corpus, like you were saying. But give us just a little more insight on the hatchery, the programs. Like, I'm sure we're going to have tons of follow-up questions. Because me and Chris both talked before this. I was like, do you know much about the hatcheries? He said, I know we have them and they're good. And I said, yeah, me too. So we should be <laughs> able to ask some follow-up questions here. And I don't think a lot of our audience knows much about it and you know some of the inner working so i'm sure we're, we're gonna have a lot of follow-up questions and and we're probably gonna interrupt you a few times during this no problem, <laughs> no problem. The, you know the hatcheries are like it, it's it's a extremely valuable tool that parks and wildlife has to make sure we have a healthy fishery and 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 that all started in 1983 cca started the hatchery in corpus christi by uh, providing the funding to construct that the original building there in Flower Bluff and we've supported hatcheries since but uh, there's a lot of confusion is are they CCA hatcheries or are they parks and wildlife hatcheries and they are definitely parks and wildlife hatcheries staffed with parks and wildlife employees that are paid for by us the recreational angler with our fishing license purchase so our 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 fishing license purchase helps the sustainability of our fisheries and the hatcheries is, is, is an important piece of that. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, there's three of them across the coast. Uh, CCA helped start the one in Corpus and helped start the one in Lake Jackson. And those hatcheries um, will take fish from the wild and um, brood stock, so fish that are capable of reproducing, and they'll put them in tanks and put them on a what's called a photothermal cycle, which is basically just mimicking the seasons of the year. And you do that through light and temperature manipulation. So daylight hours and 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 temperature. So you can you can put them on any cycle you want to at any point in time of the year. But with redfish, it takes about 150 days. We compress the seasons of the year. Um, winter, spring, and summer, compress those into 150 days. And then we put them into the fall, which is their natural time to spawn in the wild. And so we'll keep them in those fall conditions for a, a long time, as long as they'll keep providing us with, with eggs. And all they do, they keep those daylight hours constant and fluctuate the water temperatures. Give them a warm front and a cold front, warm front, cold front, just like we do in the fall as that season is changing and the redfish are spawning offshore. Now, this isn't just like some little aquarium tank that's like the size of a car. This is like something huge, right? Yeah, you know, the tanks can vary in size and you can spawn them in, in, in just massive tanks. Or, um, you know, the ones that are, uh, it's, been, it's been six years, but I think they're 8,000 gallons are, are the, the size of the tanks that the broodstock are in. And, and, they keep about five redfish and these are these are fish bull reds fish you would catch offshore and so they're at least 36 inches and some are some are bigger and they'll have a um a couple males and a a few females um in that tank and and those fish will spawn the eggs they'll spawn in the water column so the eggs are released and the milt or the sperm is released and fertilization happens in the water column. And in that egg is an oil droplet. And that allows the egg to be buoyant. So it floats to the water's surface. 
and they're able to skim the surface of the water and collect those eggs. Then they take them to an incubation room where they're incubated for almost three days. So the egg will hatch within 24 hours and then it will spend the next day and a half to two days feeding off of its yolk sac. So you don't have to feed anything to it immediately. It has those nutrients in its yolk sac that will consume. And so while that larvae is consuming those things, it's developing its fins, his mouth, his eyes have become pigmented so he can see and hunt. And once it's fully developed as a larvae and no longer feeding off its yolk sac, they'll harvest those larvae and put them in outdoor ponds. And the outdoor rearing ponds have already been prepared. They've been fertilized with organic and inorganic fertilizers to create a phytoplankton bloom. And that phytoplankton bloom um, helps stimulate the growth and propagation of zooplankton that are naturally in the water. So small rotifers and uh, copepod nopalii, um, maybe small shrimp. So there's all those, all these small little aquatic critters in the water column that are in there because you've prepared the pond. Shane, what's an yeah. opagoogly guy? <laughs> it's just think of a very tiny crustacean, you know, okay. and, and it could be, it could be, it could be a crab larvae. It could be a tiny shrimp larvae. It could be a barnacle larvae, an oyster larvae. And redfish will feed on, uh, on anything that's in front of them that's small enough to fit in their mouth. But there's the copepods are a, are a very common crustacean, easy to um, grow a lot of them in our outdoor rearing ponds as our rotifers. So uh, the larvae are, are stocked into the pond and the pond provides the nourishment for the larvae. And about 400,000 redfish larvae are put into a one acre pond. And then it takes about a month and a half for those larvae to reach what we call fingerlings, which are about an inch and a half long. And then they'll harvest the pond anywhere from a fish that's an inch and a quarter to up to two inches. They'll harvest those redfish and then they'll release them back into the wild. How many, how many harvest are you getting a year out of this, these ponds? Yeah, it varies from facility to facility, but I'm intimately familiar with Sea Center because I was there for a decade, and mm -hmm. we would, we have, we would have 30 ponds. There's 36 ponds total. We use some of them for holding fish, some of them for kid fishing events. So we use 30 for production, and we would typically run through three complete cycles, so at least 90 ponds worth. Of, of fish during a production season. Sometimes we would get more. And that resulted in anywhere from 10 million to 15 million fingerlings coming out of that facility in, in Lake Jackson. And per how year. many? Per, 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 per year? year? Per year. Sorry. Yeah. Per year. And, 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 and the year is, is the production season starting in first harvest is in May and the last one's definitely before Thanksgiving. So, and of those of those fifteen million per year, we know some of them are not going to make it. What percentage, once you guys release them, are you estimating actually make it to maturity? Yeah, um, and 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 I, I need to say that it's not just Lake Jackson. You know, coastwide, twenty-five to thirty million fingerlings are are released because you have those other two facilities in play. 
Lake Jackson and Palacios are blessed with a little bit better water quality than down at down in Corpus. But when water quality conditions are prime for all three facilities, they can reach their quota, which is 25 million fish. Facilities can reach their quota much earlier in the year. So once the quota is released, you know, we can do some of those things like you're saying, analyzing, you know, which, how many are surviving. So that, that question was asked for redfish and and some answers um, are have been provided and, and that was done through DNA tracking of the fish. So we know the DNA of the of the parents because we have them captive in the tanks. And so we could match up the offspring back to the parents. And so that was done in uh, I think 2009 was when that research was published and it varies. Sometimes it could be 0% of the fish that I put into or that are put into East Matagorda Bay are going to be detected in a study. I'm not saying that 0% survive. I'm saying 0% would be detected in the study mm -hmm. because the natural recruitment is already there and so strong enough. There's not a spot or there's not a lot of space for those hatchery fish to fill. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's a void and the conditions are great and the bay is really healthy, then there's a lot of spaces for those fish to, to go into. And so I think the highest number that they tracked through DNA was 17% hmm. um, in that same study. The study had some concerns and flaws. If you look at the growth of the fish and look at size classes of fish, you also can kind of infer whether or not that's a wild fish or a hatchery released fish. If you're catching, if you go out and you have right now a six inch redfish attack your, your tail and you, you know, that is not a wild fish because those fish most likely not because the wild fish were spawned way back in uh, October, November of last year and redfish until they start uh, putting energy into reproduction, they grow rapidly about an inch a month. So, um, and hatchery's putting them out at two inches. So if they're putting out fish at two inches in April or May, and you're fishing in July and August and catching that six inch fish, then most likely that's a hatchery release. If I'm catching fish. a six inch fish, oh. I'm in the wrong damn spot. <laughs> you need to, you need to, you need to upsize your lure a little bit. I can't remember uh, the last time I caught a six inch fish. <clears throat> I had a, I had a question. You said that the water quality was better. Yeah, um, I knew you were up, gonna. Yeah, yeah, you were gonna be like, "What's north, wrong with Corpus?" Compared to the Corpus water quality, there, is it just well, the amount of sediment and stuff that's no, available no, no, for? No. I mean, what is it? They have a couple of challenges. Hypersaline conditions is is their biggest hurdle, mm -hmm. and so if there's not a lot of rainfall in that area, the Upper Laguna Madre, which is where their intake is, uh, it's very salty. So when you get above forty two. 44 45 parts per thousand it's it's very difficult for those larvae in the ponds to survive you're outside of their tolerance because think about it in the natural space they're offshore and that water is 33 to 35 parts per thousand so that's how the species evolved and you're putting them into this brine at 44 45 parts per thousand and they just they just they have a difficult time now is that the same for trout um, as far as the trout water can do quality a little, and... trout can do a little better because 
they've they're conditioned. If you take look, if you take broodstock from that area, which is what they do, and spawn those broodstock, their offspring will a little bit better be able to to survive those conditions. But you got to remember the Luguna Madres, although it's narrow, it's extremely long and 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 vast and um, a lot of times what happens is there'll be like, a, I want to say a cloud, but there'll be an area of higher saline water that moves it back and forth uh, up and down the, the, the base system. And so it's when that area is near the hatchery's intake is when they have, when they have some Sometimes difficulties. When you, when you finish fishing there, Drew, you can take your pants and dry them and they'll stand up on their own. They're like, they're starched. Yeah. 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 Big time. So, um, we talked about, you know, the redfish hatchery, you know, uh, you guys have there in Lake Jackson, one of the best flounder hatcheries. In fact, I know we send some, some pretty awesome fish there every year from the, uh, flatty daddy event Mm -hmm. that we have here in Galveston. Um, Drew, you, did you not know that they had the flounder center there? I, I did. I just wanted to ask okay. the question to Is talk, that, like to lead into more and more. They have been doing some really great research there from what I understand. And I've, I've wanted to ask this question for such a long time. Um, and I'd start the conversation with people from time to time, but I don't think it ever really comes to any sort of solid ending there was a uh, just a ton of um arguments being made for why texas should not reduce the limits on flounder and all these flounder fishermen and all these guys that i know that listen to this show that are flounder fishermen are probably going to kick me in my ass next time they they see me but you know they're complaining that the uh, advocating for for more flounder, right? They want more flounder, and they're blaming overfishing on like maybe the commercial guys um, or something like that. And they're saying, "Look, there's plenty of flounder here. We're catching tons of them. They're everywhere. Everywhere we go, there's flounder. Why are you going to reduce the flounder limits for us and the sizes?" and in my mind, knowing that flounder need that that migration, right? They need they use temperatures and and changes in in um, in tides and and the seasons, the actual seasons, like you were talking about, the you know creating the the fake seasons for these fish. They need those seasons in order to be able to move. And we went like three years without having a winter, and it just stayed hot. And nothing ever gave those fish an indication. There probably was something that gave them an indication, but those things like those high northern winds, you know, those really powerful northern winds that push a shitload of water out of the bays, plus the temperature drops dramatically, you know, 20 degrees. We've got 40-degree weather for three, four days in a row. That's sort of what those flounder need, in my opinion, to get the heck out of here. And we didn't have that for three years. So, of course, they're going to catch more flounder because they never really left. And what are they doing? They're just getting fatter sitting here in in the bay. 
Well, if people want to catch more flounder, tell them to drive over to Louisiana and they can keep a little 10-inch flounder all day long. That's in Florida. Keep, Florida is a 10-inch flounder chips, in Florida, man. man. I'm like, what the hell? Drive so over te- Texas, Texas is the only state with this with this issue, and we, we are fortunate to have you know, that stock enhancement piece, that hatchery piece, to, although it's a small part of solving this this problem, at least we have that that lever that we can pull uh, but you know the every state's battling this and it and it has everything to do with uh winter water temperatures as you mentioned chris and so if you don't have those indicators uh for not only for the fish to do their migration but also the conditions for the larvae to survive which is even more important um they have a very narrow tolerance of temperatures that they can that they can live in flounder larvae do so think about it they're spawned offshore Water temperatures are very stable, and you need water temperatures in in the mid to upper 60s um, offshore. Some we've had some winters uh, where the water temperature never got below 73, so it stayed way too warm that's for way, there to be like trout magic temperatures right there. Right. 72, 73. It stayed way too warm for successful recruitment of larvae back into our base system. So. Yeah, we enacted the closure, uh, um, our state did, and now Louisiana is in the process of considering a closure. Theirs would be, they've proposed October 15th through the end of November, and of course ours is November through de- through the December 15th. So mm-hmm. um, between those two states, we would effectively have a, you know, two and a half month, or two month, I should say, uh, wait, yeah, two and a half month closure for the for the species. The major population on the Gulf, we're fortunate in that it's we have a stronghold between the Mississippi River and and Galveston Bay. I mean, but outside of that, we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing decreases in in that zone. But outside of that zone, the decreases are even more dramatic. So um, we need we need cold winters, and we need we need successive cold winters to really help rebound the population i don't uh, see that happening look at the look at what we got going on this year yeah and, and and those cold fronts need to occur earlier in the year not not late early march you know you don't we need them between november and you know christmas really well you know i'm not a i'm i don't necessarily subscribe prescribe to the, the theory of global warming but i know it's getting hot as out there it's getting really hot and we have not had winters like we used to i remember as a kid trick-or-treating was tough in houston it was difficult because we'd always have a cold front come through that would chill us to our bones in october and then as i got older man we haven't had those october cold fronts I want to say like 20 years, 15, 20 years. We haven't had those October cold fronts, but they haven't necessarily cold fronts. Haven't necessarily just completely disappeared. You're right. We don't get them until like February, March now though. Yeah. And these things are cyclical, uh, you know, in, in, in hundred and 200 years, it make, you know, things will turn around most likely. Mm-hmm. But while we're in this period of time, we, you know, back to that point earlier about being conservation minded, we should do what we can to help ensure that, there's still plenty of fish for us to to access because while the fishery is at a low, 
we don't need to be out there hammering and taking every last one out of the water. There's a lot of people out there that don't understand that, though, Shane. You know, yeah. they 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 think the fish are there, so they should be able to take them. It's yeah. my right to catch all these fish. They, you know, they say it, I can keep five. I'm keeping all five every time I go. I and that's that's their prerogative, dude. You know, they they can. That's why there's a limit. You know, so that for every license that's out there, they're allowed to take that many fish. Um, but it is also the, a problem with the people that don't have licenses that will take way more than their their fair share. Um, those guys exist, too. And yep. those are just plain assholes. Mm-hmm. So how long has the flounder hatchery, you know, been in motion? You said the redfish or the hatcheries you said have been since 83. Has mm-hmm. that been, how long has the redfish been, the trout, and then the flounder? And you don't have to give us. Trout on this, on this uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to give us exact number of years, but I mean, about 10, about five, you yeah, know, uh, so on and so red, forth. Redfish started, you know, the research started in the mid 70s, and, and, and the hatchery piece started, you know, the stock enhancement started in 83. Um, and then the trout came along. Uh, in the, uh, I think the mid '90s is when they started doing some trout releases. But then, by the time we started talking about the state started talking about reducing limits from ten to five, in the in the uh, Lower Laguna Madre, you know that's the first bay system down there. You know they went to five fish before everybody else did. When that kicked off, trout production really really ramped up. And the flounder piece started in about in earnest, really, 06 was the big push, 2006, uh, to get that thing ramped up. The first release of fingerlings was in 2009, I believe. And, and then it's been, it's been going since, and it's had, had a lot of growing pains. And one, you know, one major hurdle was trying to use the existing hatchery space with flounder. And you've got redfish and trout in the mix as well. So you're shuffling equipment around and, and it's just a nightmare for the staff. So we what help. different type of challenges do, do, do flounder? Um, what, what different type of challenges do you have with flounder compared to the redfish and the trout? So the larvae are uh, much more slower growing. It's a cold water species. So unlike redfish where they consume their yolk sac in three days, it takes about a week for that flounder to consume its yolk sac. And it takes a redfish because it's a warm water growing fish. You know, it, it gets to two inches in a, in a month. Well, flounder will take several months to get to, to that two inch mark. The tricky piece is the larvae culture for the first 45 to 60 days and maintaining those conditions, that narrow temperature window for successful larvae development and then on top of that, for that whole time, you have to provide the food. So we can't stick them in a pond like we do with redfish and trout. We do all this indoors. So we have to grow the food for the flounder. So it's mass production still growth of those rotifers and those, those first feeding things that the flounder will eat. And then it's maintaining that environment to keep the larvae alive for 45 to 60 days. This all sounds like my second child. Just needy <laughs> as hell. Yeah. Well, 
you know, and that, you know, just like children do at puberty, they go through a metamorphosis, right? Well, the flounder will go through a metamorphosis where they go from a, a looks like a normal swimming fish, right? It has a, a, uh, a, a pectoral fin and it has um, uh, pelvic fins and it eyes on either side of the head. Well, at about that time, um, after about 40 days to 60 days, weird. depending on the water temperature, hang on, the <laughs> right eye, the right eye migrates over to the left side of the body and the bones, as that's happening, the bones in the skull kind of shift and move around to allow that eye to move over and they flatten out and they settle out in the water column. Once you get that fish through metamorphosis, they are as hardy as any other fish, if not hardier than any other fish in the bay. I mean, it's, you can put them in freezing water or you can put them in 90 degree Fahrenheit water and they'll survive. Really? They're extremely durable. But up to that point, they're very fragile. Now, they like to say that redfish are extremely hardy. So you're saying that are flounder as hardy as redfish? Because that's surprising that you said the first 40 days were, were difficult with flounder. Because maybe it's just public perception. But everybody calls like specs the, the divas. They're the divas of the, of the inshore world. But you're saying actually, you know, flounder are kind of the divas until they get through that metamorphosis. They're very needy children, but after they go through that metamorphosis, you know, it's, you don't have to worry about them. Um, they, they're, they're hardy. You think about a flounder. He's on the bottom of the water, at the bottom of the bay, right? The worst water quality conditions are in that zone. So they are able to withstand very low, um, oxygen levels. They're able to, um, just be in conditions that you don't, you know, sometimes you find them way up in the shallows. There's hardly any, there's no water on their back. You, sometimes they're, you find them where their backs are partially exposed and the sun's beating down and, you know, that water's 90 something degrees and they're just sitting there because they're, they don't want to move. And they're, they're pretty lazy fish. Um, but yeah, yeah they're, they get, they're, they get spiked by power poles. They get hit by <laughs> props. You know, they yep. are, they do yep. not move. Yeah. And then they still survive even after you see teeth marks. Uh, gig marks, prop mm -hmm. marks on those fish, and they're still swimming around. I like flounder. Flounder's my second favorite fish, except for redfish. Yeah, I like I catching don't like, flounder. I don't more like the now. hunt for flounder. I mean, I so my friend Colin and I would go on a flounder a wading trip once a year, and we decided it would always be on my birthday, November first. Uh, I don't know why we didn't go to October 31st, but we always went. You, got, you guys Park. remind me to post some pictures on the Palish Playbook Facebook page and on the, the Playbook group. Of, of our flounder Of days. some, some fairy landing pictures where yeah. they're in their waders uh, posing like supermodels in front so, of some flounder. Yeah, we would do the flounder photo shoot. The flounder photo shoot was a yearly thing, man. And But that was the only time I ever went flounder fishing. And that was because... Colin is is such a you know a fairy for flounders. He um, loves he loves flounder, <laughs> yeah. and he's always out there trying to catch Big Bertha, and uh, I guarantee you I best him every time. But um, <laughs> flounder is not my thing, dude, because it's too slow of fishing. It's too slow of fishing. Yeah, Can't it's it. I, I I like catching them. You know, it's a bonus fish for a lot of us, um, and you know I'd like to see them come back to where. 
you may be targeting redfish like you know like i do and i'm going after redfish but every trip i'm coming home with a flounder not because i'm targeting flounder but just because they're there that's your bycatch i I want them to yeah exactly you know i I, drew was with me on this fishing trip once we were actually in some schools of redfish it was ridiculous we were catching (laughs) redfish around every corner and our buddy um was with us micah simino and uh, I point out this school of redfish and I'm like, all right, Micah, here they're coming, man. They're going to come around this corner. And as soon as they come around this corner, man, get ready to cast into them. And uh, that red, the, that school is coming around the corner. He casts directly into the middle of the school. He gets bit and pulls out a flounder. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I that. Like, I was like, dude, <laughs> How in the hell does that happen? Like a whole school and the flounder beats everybody to the punch. Come on. He threw it right on the nose of that fish. He did. Mm-hmm. Landed yeah. it right on that flounder. <clears throat> yeah. That's so so Shane, what do you what do you like to target the most? Uh trout, I, redfish. Reds. reds. I'm a redfish guy. But, I mean That's why we brought you on the show. There you go. Dude, gaff I don't know if you are noticing this. I'm seeing a lot more dock side pictures of gaff top than i, I ever saw one the other day i did i i saw that one too i thought it was just somebody it's not a joke anymore problems, <laughs> no i've eaten them before i will i will admit to that we went out one time um we were just gonna do a jetty trip for some black tip shark we went out to the jetties and we ended up catching this one gaff top that was just so freaking huge that we were like that's that's quality enough to go ahead and give it a try. So we brought it home and um, man, it was, it was actually decent. It wasn't horrible. It was kind of tough though. That meat was, yeah, it was not. Was flaky. it as, no, was it kind of like, um, I've never had it, but I like, I, I don't mind catching them. Was it like a kingfish? Like that same type? No, of- I love kingfish, man. The, 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 the texture, texture of kingfish is, is fantastic. No, it was, it was just as you would imagine. The flavor was fine. It was the texture. If okay. you can imagine something that, like, if you were, um, all right, I know we've done this as a kid. Shane, how old are you? 45. 45. We're the same age. Drew's a little bit younger than us. All right. I'm a lot a bit younger, but go ahead. You remember Silly Putty? Yeah, yeah. The pink, you know, Silly Putty? Uh-huh. You you're not supposed your to mouth? eat. You're not yeah. supposed to eat silly putty, Chris. You're supposed to put it on the newspaper on the yeah. funny pages. That's what you you're know, supposed you to remember do. Remember putting it in your mouth though, and taking a bite out of it. I, I know, silly, I know the like. texture. Yeah, that's kind of what gaff top was like. Is the texture was was funny. The flavor yeah. not bad. Um, would I go out there and target them to eat? No. Do I do I uh, enjoy a fight every now and then? Sure. This last um, uh, redfish tournament that Tilly and I fished, Drew, um, homie was fighting this fish for the longest time, and he was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be a good one. He gets it to the boat, and he's like, son of a... It was a gaff top. It was big, and it was feisty, man. Those things always fight like a redfish. You can't tell them apart. Well, you know... Let's let, let let's let the guides put their out of state clients on as many gaff top as they want, and there you know, give you the bre- give the redfish and the trout a break for a little while. <laughs> there you go. do those meat hauls for yeah. Get off the reef and get out there and ch- <laughs> chum it up for some gaff tops. Let's. I'll tell you one funny gaff top story. They'll eat anything. 
I mean, they'll whatever is on the bottom or in the water column that in front of them, they'll they'll eat it. Parks and Wildlife was doing gut analysis, so they're taking gaff top and cutting them open and looking what was in their stomach and cataloging everything. And um, one of the most unique items they found in Galveston Bay was a <laughs> used condom in the uh, stomach of. Now, the, how did the they bay. know yeah. it was used? <laughs> It was out of the wrapper. I mean, DNA <laughs> testing. They did DNA testing. Lord have mercy. It wasn't in the wrapper, so you got. I'm assuming it was used. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, look like a jellyfish or a squid or something I like can, that, I, depending yeah, on how used it was. Sense. Yeah. So they are very close to redfish. Then I, I always say redfish are the greediest of uh, all um, inshore fish because they will eat almost anything and we've seen pictures where people have gutted them and there have been like cell phone cases inside their bellies uh shotgun shells are yeah definitely a, yeah uh, at the top of the list of things that they'll eat but they'll eat almost damn near anything too yeah yeah we do have we do gravitate on this show towards redfish um mainly because you know that's I'm just ate up with it drew um, he tries to. He's tried this year to become a freshwater fisherman. Um, I don't think he's turned out as, horribly, as... <laughs> horribly. Um, myself, I live in Algoa, um, and I'm, so I'm like ten minutes, fifteen minutes from uh, any saltwater launch, and I fish anywhere from Brownsville all the way to Stanhatchee, Florida. Um, but I guarantee you, I'm not going to any of those locations looking for trout or flounder. Yeah. I'm, no, that's I'm, my fish too. I mean, if I had to catch one more fish in my lifetime in the bay, it's redfish, absolutely. And they used now, to be trash fish, man. You know that, Drew? When they were non-game fish, it, it wasn't until Paul Prudhomme started cooking them up with that blackening seasoning that they became something real special. That's what everybody wanted. Now, Shane, I kind of I want to end this. Um, there is a lot of jealousy from other states, like Chris was saying, for CCA Texas. Uh, they've done a whole lot of good. I've listened to other podcasts, especially in the Carolinas, you know, uh, Georgia, where they're like, man, I wish we could get some hatchery programs. I wish we could get some stuff going um, like Texas has down there, you know, for their redfish and their trout and their flounder and things like that what do what do these other states have to do i know you said florida was had had a big you know cca but what do these other states have to do to get to the point that texas is at right now with its hatcheries which with its fundraising with the star tournament and everything is is there things that they could be doing as a fishing community uh, I mean, supporting their local chapters is one, but is there any guide that you could help, you know, other fishermen to help out their CCA even more? Yeah, I mean, there's not, I don't think there's exactly one recipe or one approach to improving um, the, the fisheries in those other states. But, you know, obviously the thing that's worked for us is that grassroots advocacy work and having those relationships and the people placed at um at, at the capitol and talking constantly to elected officials about 
what's important, what's going on on the coast. And in that process, always being straightforward and honest, and you fostered a trustworthy relationship over decades. And so, you know, that's what's helped us get to this point. States are starting that, um, but you got to started in 1977. So we've been at this thing about years. Other states are having to catch up to, to where we're at, but it's they're going through some growing pains, specifically North Carolina being one of them. Um, but I, I think they, they, they can get there. There's just, when you're starting something newer, you don't, you don't have that level of trust and you don't have that relationship and you don't have that track record that, that we do. I, but I think over time that they'll get there, but it, nothing happens without the grassroots efforts and the engagement with the recreational anglers. I mean, it starts with Chris, it starts with Drew, and it starts with Shane. I mean, it's up to us. To, to just get out there, spread Preach the it, word. Brother. Like, we're, we're all about what it, What you're man. doing now, what you guys it. are doing, right? you know, on this show. Yep. Getting out there and, and talking well, about it. Well, we talk conservation a lot, but we also talk tournaments a lot. And I know that yeah. sometimes can be frowned upon, um, but the tournaments that we participate in do their best to conserve uh, the species. Um, <clears throat> there are a couple out there that I don't necessarily care for participating in anymore. Um, one of them being a Florida tournament. There's not a whole lot of, you know, most most of the tournaments in Florida are kill tournaments, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, there's with the technology we have today in our hands and on our kayaks or on our boats it's really easy to transition those you miss a lot of revenue you miss a ton of money money like i said money is power man and these people thrive on making more money so at these big big tournaments you know there was one that i went to every single year in um in panacea florida and it was three days um and the sunday was the biggest weigh-in day and we would kill a whole 18-wheeler of beer. Have you ever seen an 18-wheeler of beer? That's a lot of beer. That's a lot of beer. <laughs> and, and you know, at $2 a cup, that's a lot of revenue. That's a lot of money that they're making. So, actually, it's probably more like $4 or $5 a cup, but still. Um, and then all the T-shirts and all the, you know, kettle corn and, everything else that you you sell yeah you you lose out on a lot of that revenue so yeah the technology because you have decreased participation or like if you still conduct a tournament with a with a mobile way in or a uh you know catch and release format um so when you do when we have tournaments online um which is usually using like the tourney x um format i think there's a couple other ones out there hooked um, but using the online formats, there is no weigh-in. There's no event at that point. Um, you don't go somewhere to participate in uh, handing out checks or receiving trophies. It's all pretty much virtual. Well, we, we do one for the women, the Babes on the Bay, and we transitioned that one to um, – we use Fish and Chaos for that one. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's had some growing pains, but we still do all of the same stuff that they did before Good. people show up, have a party, do all the same stuff. Nothing really changed on that end, 
but you're not having the glory shots at the that, stage. Which that's some exactly miss. what it is. The some glory shots. That. But it also, they love now tracking in real time where they're at, where they're at and, and how they're ranking against you know, the other hundred, 200, whatever, how many people, people are participating. So, um, I mean, there is that draw to it that you can just look at your phone and see where you're at. Oh gosh, I'm a half pound behind. I better get to it. Yeah. EFLs like that. I, I kind of like watching the EFL a little bit, you know, for that aspect, see the guys kind of compete rather than just get there to the, to the weigh in and, and weigh in their fish. Yeah. yeah, actually watching them compete like that. Yeah. Well, we, we're about an hour and a half into this, man. I told him we were only going to keep him for an hour. Well, Shane, is, is there anything else you want to touch on? Anything that CCA is doing? Anything upcoming you want to you want to let the people know about? You know, we have a a nice amount of listeners here. The bro staff is always down to support causes and and different things like that. We we talked about the star tournament being the main thing, but is is there any anything else you would uh steer people towards right now or any any events yeah. going on? Well, if anybody has any any questions that can about CCA or the conversation we've had, just they can follow up with me. I'd be happy to to talk to them or answer them. I'm, you can look on cca-texas.org and look on our website and I'm on there um Sbeno at cca-texas.org is our my email, but I'd be happy to engage with with people if they have any follow up questions. Um, yeah, man, if you're not in Star, get in Star. I think there's been two red red tag winners, which is the truck and boat, and one blue tag winner, which was just the boat. There's a lot of prizes still out there, so I'm gonna go are, try and find me one this uh, this Sunday. Yeah, if you're not in it. Um, um, Get it because it's the best insurance policy you could buy. Because you're gonna catch one if you don't enter it. That's right. If you don't right. enter it, you're you're gonna catch one, or you're gonna feel like every time you you hook into a red, ooh, this is the one that that you know I should have entered the tournament for. Drew, Gosh. I'd hazard a guess that Shane would be a great uh, regular guest to have on the show. You know, at least once uh, every six months, see what's going on, see what's happening with CCA and. Um, give us some tips for like maybe fall fishing, which is coming up. Oh yeah, I'd love to have have him on more. He he's he's talking scientific. He he was talking about like get your nerd on trinsocephalies <laughs> and all kinds of stuff that I have no clue no clue what it was. I I think it would be great to fish with Shane. I bet you could learn a ton out there talking to him. Right uh, on I, some I, things. I'm a, I'm, yeah, I'm up for it. We'll fish and podcast. Come back in now, guys. now if I catch a cat, if I catch a tag redfish while you're on the boat, am I disqualified from star? Oh, dude, um, no. <laughs> it, it depends on where we're fishing, probably. Um, so I'll make sure we we avoid that situation. <laughs> well, then I don't want you on the boat, man. No, no, <laughs> not yeah. during star. I don't need to be around fish that I may have released. But we're on the other end of the coast. Okay, safe. okay, gotcha. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Chris, you got anything else you want to talk about, man? No, man, absolutely. Well, I've got other things that, yeah, I want to talk about, but no, we can let Shane go. Um, and then I got a rant about quite a few things afterwards. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll talk a little bit later. Well, Shane, thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate you coming on. You definitely dropped some knowledge on us today. 
And then bro staff, guys, get in there and join the star tournament if you have 50 bucks, not right? already. 50 bucks, 30 something for your CCA membership, 25 for the star fee. I think right? so. I think we lost Shane. Did he freeze? Oh, yep. Yeah. Uh, wait, th- is he back? I think he froze. It's a good time to freeze if he's going to freeze, though, right at the end. We'll see you guys later.